Welcome, friends, to The Flower of the Cedar, a novel in episodic podcast form. We are about to start the next chapter. Come, join us. Chapter 29 Leaving the Maiden House The elves had a name for her, Ailana the Child Dancer. It had been many months since any mouth had pronounced the name Jan to her. They soon grew to know her well, her brightness among them in the markets, her growing skill at the dancing rings her limber hands joining the gatherers, and the fresh shouts of her joy when she flung herself in whole-hearted dives into the receiving ewer. Often she wondered that they allowed her so free a place among them, but as from the first their queen had showed no fear of her, and the elves she met seemed not to grip their lives nor their world tightly. Their wars had long dwelt only in their tales, and they were a waning and hidden people. They laid no claim of possession on the earth in those times. She lived still in the maiden house, in a room empty and sunlit in the day as she met with delight the outer world, and growing deeply silent at each nightfall when she returned, until the walls showed the flickering of her heart-light as she lay in commune with her god. The elves did not disturb these times, however unfamiliar the shape of them might have seemed. Yet often, in the rooms below, with a pair or more of them seated for song into the late hours, they could hear her voice raised in plea. For this god would not let her forget. And she wanted to. Badly. Dane had left the city of the Marked Ones in early autumn, and coming steadily north he had plunged into growing winter as though nothing cold could grasp him at the last. His trees of refuge he rarely formed for himself, and yet, with the prospect of her presence before him, he began spending his nights in them, watching the sturdy walls they grew, testing the feel of their hardihood against the chill. He felt a new strength ply its courses through his body in those days. Walking the roads of the world, he often laughed aloud or sprinted for the joy of speed. Even in the deep snows, with the narrow hoops of wood and laced thongs strapped to his sturdy boots, his stride seemed to encompass leagues at his ease, and he cast his thought on old stories he had loved as a boy, of the great ones who wrestled with lions and brought dragons low. His favorite, the Lay of Luthia and her brother Dagar, 
the goddess's mighty ones, awoke in his vision while he sought sleep, their twin daring upon the peaks of the dark drake's mountain when they bested him by fire and blade, and the terror of him was broken at last in the vales and pasture-land below. Sister of my heart, he thought, and far dearer than sister. What would we not dare? When once the winter had spent itself and the spring arose, he had come into the deserted lands in which rumor of the elves' country lived and lingered, and he knew he must watch each day for the changing of the colors, for fear he should wander aimless on its borders, and the days flee unrealized in fruitless search. Many, he knew, traveled straight through that country without ever setting foot in it, or knowing it lay within the world where they walked. But he knew she had found a way in, for he had followed her to this place, and the god told in his dreams of the woman hid among the elves, while the seasons spun around her, and the sun of the outer world rose and fell. He tasted the changing of the colors before he saw it, the mead flask he had brought to cure at last uncorked and lit his mouth beyond any excellence its honey could claim. He held the liquid up, inhaled, and knew from its scent, as he lifted his eyes, that he too had found his way in, though he could not have told how. The time now was short. About him rich mosses spread, a lavish growth carpeting the forest floor. Dusk in its dimness lay over the rolling green, hovering at the bases of the rosy trunks, gathering like a myriad of moths beneath the canopy above. In the distance he could see the glow of a light that was not the light of the dying sun, a light that seemed to spread in a glitter of many tiny points among the trees, the silence of the wood carried to him from afar the thin, high sound of song, its words not yet within his hearing. He walked toward the lights. Over his shoulder the sun at last descended beyond the world's rim, and fast within the trees the darkness welled. He came nearer and yet nearer, and soon he saw the streams of fireflies lighting the dancing glade, and he heard, as though with the sweep of his young blood, the elvish music for the glad rings of play and pleasure that circled within. He stepped among the lit trees, looked on the long tables laid with feasting for weeks' worth of nights, and the dancers, and the singers, and the queen who spun giddy among them with her filamented crown like stars on her brow. And then, in with the dancers, a woman whose form he knew as the bone and flesh of his own body. She danced with hearts open, 
with laughter in her hands, filling her eyes. The blooms swirled about her cheeks, dipped to her waist, effortless, buoyant. He knew the graceless match of a dryad dancer among elves even then, and yet, to him... The music softened, slowed, and drew to a close. The rings of dancers loosed one another's hands, their voices rising in murmurs as they broke and walked about. He had, without knowing it, come within a stone's throw of her, and soon she turned, her body glowing with the dance, and saw him. The shock and longing in her face told him her answer. He suddenly felt that words spoken aloud would clutter the moment, that they were now entirely unnecessary. Yet even as he thought this, he found his shoulders shedding his pack's straps, his hands carefully setting it down on the grasses of the glade, and then clasping themselves pleadingly before his body. Hello, Jan, Dane said. Jan drank him in, silent. I have come from the god, he said. He has given me to you if, if you want me. She had not spoken. It seemed she could not. Yet with slow steps she came to stand before him, her hands half-lifted as though to embrace him. Almost he could feel her touch on his body, and the attendant ache. His senses swam with her nearness. The light tea of her hair and her pale green skin, her eyes, and suddenly her palms cupping his face as she kissed him. For yet a senite more as the summer waxed brilliant, Jan lived in the maiden house, and Dane came for her in the mornings, they walked for hours in the narrow paths of the garden, to and from the market, with their arms and mouths full of the iridescent fruits sold there, and in wide, adventuring arcs into the scented pine groves, the emerald forests of rosy-trunked trees, the hills and meadows and rivers and dells of that strange and sweet country. Everywhere they might seek the horizon together, they shared talk, silence, food, and laughter, and their feet did not know weariness. In the evenings, when the fireflies sped to the dancing glades without them, Jan mounted the steps to the maiden house, and Dane lay awake in the thriven oak. And on the final morning of this senite of days, Jan came to Dane dressed in the simple cream of the brides of her people, her feet bare and her hair loosed over her shoulders, grown long with the months. He filled his eyes with her, 
not speaking, and extended his hand. Amid the singing of the elvish women heard from some inner room, Jan left the maiden house and went with Dane into the wild. He brought with him wine and bread, and he wove for her a garland of briar roses, and with the sung spells they married one another in the gods' welcoming day. I find, Jan said, her breath coming light, I should like to be full woman to you. I know it, Dane said, and brought his mouth to hers as the cream of her dress fell among the leaves and the heart blooms rushed up like flame to encircle the oak. One or two procrastinating birds hopped lower on their pine boughs to better examine the spectacle of tangled dryads, Tiny heads cocked, determined the affair overdone, and took to wing in hopes of balmier, more sensible climes. For nearly four seasons more they remained in the elves' country, the grasses and mosses of that place began to grow upon the trunk of Dane's oak, and the insects and birds thronged to its branches in familiarity. Dane had told Jan of the goddess's dream, and of what had happened at the Feast of Weeping. They knew they would need to journey back there at last, but time yet remained before they must set out, and time, in the elves' country, seemed to pass so languorously that they felt no desire to go sooner than they must. Then, with the crispness of approaching winter frosting the edges of the leaves and the breaks and slows, they returned from a long walk to words like soft fire glowing in the skin of the oak. "'You shall run this night, my children,' the script said, curving round the further side of the trunk, I send you to Lara. Dane laid a hand on the fiery letters. Jan gazed up into the clustering leaves. She'll have gone to the Lamia, she said, surprised to hear the words and yet knowing the truth in them as she spoke. Then we shall go to her, said Dane. Jan nodded. The wilder I knew is a great distance from here, she said. She must have found another, a closer... The elves will know. We will speak with the queen, said Dane. The journey did not take them long. When they reached the Wilder's forest, they went slowly, looking full about them, until one of the patrols found them and questioned them. One of their number had lived for a time in the wilder Jan had visited, and knew of Jan's Emma by word, though she had not met her. The Lamia allowed Jan and Dane to accompany them to the longhouses, where they asked after Lara. Many of the young folk knew nothing of her, and soon it became clear that Lara lived there no longer. A day passed before Jan found Asra, 
who could tell her of Lara during her time with the initiates. She knew the girl had fled, Asra said, but she had no idea where she had gone, nor why. Initiates were not bound to the wilder and might leave at any time, likewise with the Lamia. Questions were not asked when one chose to leave. Would anyone know? said Jan. Asra gave this some thought. Lara did not confide often in us, she said, but she spent the most time with a Lamia called Anna. Perhaps she would know. Jan thanked the girl and made her way in among the dwellings of the Lamia, asking where Enna lived. Soon the muted humming of bees filled Jan's ears, and she and Dane saw the little home with its surrounding hives. In a low chair outside the home's entrance, a young woman sat in the thin wash of winter sunlight, her eyes closed and her face easeful. Jan approached. Anna, she said. The woman opened her eyes. I am Anna, she said. My name is Jan, Jan said. I've come looking for a friend of mine who lately lived in the longhouses. She's called Lara. Anna sat forward, her eyes now alert and on Jan's face. You know her, she said. Jan nodded. We journeyed together for some time. I am searching for her now because I fear she may need my help. Anna searched Jan's face keenly. You belong to the god, she said. I do, said Jan, soft. She sent me to find Lara. Anna tilted her head. You name the god she. For the autumn and for the winter, said Jan, as the marked ones do. I have not heard this, said Anna. The god is he among us, and, and Lara hates the god. She came to us because she wished to keep her hearts from him. I know this, said Jan. She asked suddenly, Do you also? Hate the god, said Enna, and shook her head softly. I have no cause to love nor hate him. I have no need for him. But I understood Lara's hate. I was fond of her, said Enna, sighing. She ran away just after her first gutting. She did not say why she has not returned nor sent any word. Do you know where she went? She ran into the forest in the direction of the river. If she found it, it would take her to the sea, but I do not know if she went that way or if she went elsewhere. We do not chase any who wish to leave. Jan stood silent for a while. Then she said, giving her hand to the Lamia, Thank you, Anna. You've helped me a good deal. She paused and then said simply, I should have liked to know you. Anna smiled, grasping the proffered hand warmly. Then, as though in a burst of recklessness, she said, If you find her, Tell her she is not the only one for whom the guttings rent her hearts. In days gone, I have spoken this aloud, but rarely, but I would have her know it. She took in a breath, and her shoulders set in slighter strength for her next words. Our elders have mistaken the usual for the right, 
she said. Dane started, looking at her swiftly, but said nothing. I mean to end the guttings here, as others have done in Wilder's not our own. She would be welcome, she would be needed, if she will. Will you tell her? I will, said Jan, and left. They found the river with some trouble. For lack of better knowledge, they followed its course, watching for sign or scent of her passage. On the twentieth day, Dane found the print of a foot that might have been hers. Its tread led downstream, and so they kept beside the river until it emptied them with its fens onto the open beach amid the loosening of the winter. We should keep under the trees, said Jan, scanning the horizon. Might not welcome the sight of us. Slowly they made their way further down the shore, silent and watchful. But the day passed, and the next, and the next, with no sign of Lara. Jan and Dane slept in his oak in the nights and spent their days walking the shore. Soon a fortnight had gone, then another, and still they could not find her. The spring had nearly blossomed into summer when at last they caught sight of the wild creature on the sands, lying as though dead in the sunlight, and then, after a long time, rising abruptly to forge out into the ocean. The naked body darkened, the long, tangled hair, the adept strokes, the taut energy as though she were a line near to snapping. They knew Lara on sight though she never turned to face them. Jan and Dane knelt within the tree-line, unseen. "'She holds great pain in her,' Jan said, low, troubled. "'How should we approach?' "'It should be you alone,' said Dane. "'We must not frighten her.' "'Yes,' said Jan. "'Wait here, then. Ready the oak for us.' "'Go under the mercy,' Dane said, touching his palm to the small of her back, then setting his lips to hers. She broke away, smiling, looking back at him as she went. Jan took off her shoes and walked into the sands, watching the curves of Lara's arms flashing among the waves as she swam. Jan kept pace along the shore, waiting, murmuring to the god, Soon the swimmer doubled back, slowing, then leaving her parallel line and cutting directly in to land. Jan stopped and lowered herself to the beach. Lara rose from the water in a single motion, striding up to where the sand lay dry. Suddenly she saw the intruder. She froze instantly. That face. Those eyes meant something, she knew, and it meant pain, fear. Lara turned and fled. She fled down the beach, speeding into the trees, feet fleet over the brush. Had it followed her, that harbinger of danger, that woman's face she felt she somehow knew? 
Jan had risen at once and begun running after Lara, but she soon lost sight of her in the trees. Still she ran, hoping the one she followed would not turn, raking the forest for mark of her friend as she ran. It took nearly an hour of running, but at last Jan heard the faint signs of Lara's course ahead of her, then saw the motion of it in the whippy branches and low-hanging vines, before finally catching sight of Lara herself, wearying but still running. Jan put on speed. When she had come within shouting distance, Jan cried, Lara! Lara heard. The name pierced her psyche like sun through a dispersing fog. She slowed, turned, and stared at Jan, who came breathing heavily behind. Lara, said Jan, leaning forward with her hands on her knees, don't run. I won't hurt you. That name, this voice, the broken shreds of her mind came rushing together. In the instant she remembered who she was, Lara started back from Jan in horror. She had run in every way she knew how to, and still her self-made ruin had tracked her down. What could she do? Where could she flee? Jan was looking at her with love and worry, and she did not deserve either. What had she done? What had she done? Oh, Lara, said Jan, good like, I'm glad to see you. Why did you run away? Was the gutting so terrible? Lara stared with her tongue arrested within her mouth. I followed you, said Jan, mistaking Lara's shock. I spoke with Enna. She said you left on the night of your gutting, didn't say anything, just ran. Jan put out a warm hand and laid it on Lara's shoulder, a caress and entreaty, both. You can tell me, she said. At Jan's touch, Lara shuddered. The kindness fell like lashes on her raw skin. Still, she could not speak. Jan did not know. Jan watched her friend's countenance with dismay, unable to interpret the storm she saw there. You needn't talk of it just yet if you don't want to, she said. I won't press you. But will you come back with me? I hate to think of you alone like this. You have been hurting, I can see. She reached for Lara's hand. Lara jerked away. She did not look at Jan. Her friend's warmth seemed to encompass her. And she longed, as she had never longed before, to walk into it at her invitation, to take up that old, undeserved kindness and surround herself with it. She could use it like cords enwrapping her splintered body, holding her together. Jan did not know. Enna had not known. Only Lara knew.
I could never tell, Lara thought. Diaron will never return to his parents' home. I could see to it that no tale of him returns there either. This final thread Jan offered her unwitting, a last, smallest, thinnest hope of continuing life. She might take it up. She might take it, too, from Jan. And no one the wiser. If this broke, nothing waited for her but death. Lara? Jan was looking at her, the worry deeper now, her hands hanging uncertain at her sides. Lara raised her head. She will never look at me like this again, she thought. I killed Diaron, she said. I slit his throat for the gutting. The Flower of the Cedar is written, produced, and published by me, Kay Ben-Avraham. This content is made possible by the support of my patrons on Patreon, who make monthly pledges they can increase, decrease, or cancel at any time. If you are enjoying listening, please consider supporting my work on Patreon. Even a dollar a month makes a great difference to a struggling author. For those of you wishing to support this work in non-monetary fashion, you can tell a friend about the podcast or leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help ratings rise so that other people can find it. Thank you so much. <laughs>